All right, so I'm, I'm uh, at Jackson's Corner. You know what, let's, uh, if you can, turn to Ephesians. I want to pick up two passages and then, then we can get to saying, saying what we need to say. Ephesians, we'll just start in Ephesians chapter 2. We kind of referenced this last week, and then we want to pop down to chapter 4. But Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, it's one of my favorite books of the Bible. In Ephesians chapter 2, we'll pick it up in verse 6 actually. Now let's, let's pick it up in verse 4. So Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4. Let me read this to you. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy... It, it, it really makes me angry that the Christian church would, yeah, I mean, I'm beating a dead horse here, but I hope it would bother all of us that, that there's strands of the church that just miss the fact that God is love and that somehow, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I, I, I hope you would just see how we can just put blinders on. The Pharisees did that. They knew the Bible so well, yet they, they just missed the obvious. Anyways, God who is, is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. And it is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ when we were saved and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And then we get this verse 10. It says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. There's a phrase in there a couple times that you can circle, but it's in Christ. In Christ. What it really means to be a Christian, what it really means to accept this offer, this free offer, it's, it's by grace. It means we don't pay for it. We accept it. It's that awkward thing of just taking something that's free and not being able to do anything in return. It's, it's this offer God is making to us in Christ Jesus that we accept by faith and it's, it's grace, it's free. And when we do that, we literally become, the phrase is, in Christ. In Christ. The, uh, the, the great irony is that we, we, we just mess that. We mess that up because... In our, in our language, we want to say, and there's some verses that kind of communicate this kind of thing, but the overwhelming thing in Scripture is this picture of us being in Christ. The idea is a covering where his righteousness literally covers our failings or our unrighteousness so that when we stand in the presence of God, what he sees is perfection that's alien to us. It's foreign to us. It's not our perfection. It's Christ's perfection. We're literally robed in this. We're in Christ. So 
That's the phrase. It's en Christos in Scripture. That's the phrase over and over. What phrase do we use in, in the contemporary Christian church when we say someone's a Christian? We use the phrase that you have Jesus in your heart, right? Okay. Now, there's some verses, a couple verses that kind of go that direction, but the overwhelming thing is this idea of being in Christ. And there's a real difference to... There's a, I think there's a real emotional difference to how we see this thing. Because we naturally... There's, a, there's an old hymn... Let me draw this out for you. There's an old hymn that says, We are climbing Jacob's ladder. Do you guys remember that? Uh, we are climbing Jacob's ladder. The idea was Jacob went out, slept on a rock, God gave him a dream, and there was a ladder, and there was angels ascending and descending on that ladder. That the ladder was in some sense a bridge between heaven and earth and angels were actually ascending and descending. There's this kind of sense of connection between um, Jacob and, uh, and God in the heavenly realms here. The, so, so the song, We're Climbing Jacob's Ladder, is, is just a complete like, ro- like pivot, misunderstanding of that passage. Does that make sense? The most amazing thing is, is Jesus walks up when he goes to get his disciples and... Uh, Let's just read it. Turn to John if you could. This is fun stuff. This is like finding cool stuff in the Bible. That's what it's like, for lack of a better word. So Jesus uh, goes, and this is uh, chapter 1. Jesus goes and he finds Philip and Andrew and Peter and these guys. And... uh, and then when Jesus saw Nathanael, he says to him, here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. It's a pretty killer statement, right? Jesus saying, look, this, this is what I'm talking about. This guy doesn't have hypocrisy. He doesn't have a duplicitous, duplicitous heart. He's not playing games. Here's a true Israelite in whom there's nothing false. And Nathanael says, how do you know me? Jesus says, I saw you while you, were, while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. And then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. So this guy has big faith. I mean, he only needs like a little sliver and he's like, cool, I'm in. I mean, he's got, you know what I'm saying? Like, he's got big faith, a little bit, and he just, okay. <laughs> You're the Son of God, the King of Israel. And Jesus is amazed by this and he says, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree, that simple little thing that kind of telling you, prophesying. He says, you're going to see greater things than that. Tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Well, Jesus just got saying, here's a true Israelite, true Israelite knows the stories and the story is one of the chief stories of the Israelite people group is the story of Jacob this this patriarch and how he had this dream and heaven opened up and there was angels ascending and descending on this ladder right and Jesus says you're going to see heaven open up and angels ascending and descending what 
on the Son of Man. We don't climb the ladder. Jesus becomes a metaphorical bridge for us that links us with God, with heaven. He's the thing that bridges this gap so that we're able to be in fellowship and and in unity with God. And, And so when we are in Christ, what we're really saying is we are now glued to God because of this glue. The thing I don't like about the typical drawing of a bridge, and you've seen this before, here's man separated from God because of sin. God's on this side. And we... Here's the cross, right? Have you seen that picture? It's good in what sense? It's good in the sense of saying without Christ and his atonement for sin, without him dying, that fundamental problem that we would be separated from God. So we have to have Christ in order to get... What's the problem with this picture? This is the problem with this picture. You seeing it? Now where's Christ? So Christ becomes a a mechanism by which we get to the other side where it's it's us and God um, chum buddy buddy like like chums. And and Scripture is just we begin to lose the unbelievable. power of grace that we in and of ourselves are not worthy of being with God but God in his love and his mercy has sent Christ that we're clothed with his righteousness and because of Christ we're able to have this fellowship with God that he's our advocate he's always there with us when God sees us he always sees Christ in that mix and so the, the passage in here in, in Ephesians and all of Paul's writings is hammering home this idea that you are in Christ. So why are we talking about this? This picture here in some of the... I, I, so I was at Jackson's Corner and I was talking to some, some dear saints from this church that were incredibly encouraging. But one of the things that the gal said to me, she goes, Ken... Um, just say it. Just say what you need to say. <laughs> You're too afraid to just say it, you know, because I get, I, I, get, I get these games going in my head of what can I really get away with saying. She just said, she said, just say it. And it was kind of this moment of like, you know what? I'm my own worst enemy. I think I'm your own worst enemy. Because when I play those games and I don't just say what needs to be said, I'm not serving anybody. And one of the things I'm reacting to, because I grew up with a flippancy about the gospel, where it's all about the sinner's prayer. Now, I'm not saying the sinner's prayer is like, raise your hand or stand up and say this prayer and you are saved. You know what I'm talking about? We all do because we see it everywhere. It's it's part of American culture. Now, does that mean that you weren't or or someone else wasn't saved by saying the sinner's prayer? I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is we've done with this, this prayer, this altar call, this responsive kind of thing, what we've done with that is we've made it this magic formula 
where it's kind of cheap grace. It's like, really? You just want me to stand up? You got some killer music playing? That's all I got to do? And then God has to love me and uh, I, can, I can sin all I want and it's still good? It's, that sounds kind of cool. And we've, we've kind of made it so cheap and we've reduced salvation where we respond to God's grace through faith, which is a heart thing. We've turned it into this behavioral thing. And, and it's, I mean, it's a little bit strange. And it's not necessarily, it's not even close to the picture you have in Scripture. The closest picture you have to, in Scripture to something like that is baptism. Where it's like, I heard the message I'm down, I'm ready, what should I do? The closest picture in Scripture we have to that kind of a responsive thing is baptism. The sinner's prayer, the way we have it, came about in the the mid-1800s. It began with what was called the anxious seat. And it was part of of a philosophy of revival that said, if making a verbal proclamation or a decision is how people are saved, then anything we can do persuasively to help get people to that point where they'll do that, well, then let's do that. Do, do you see what I'm saying? And, and it kind of grew from there. And so it's not that we're not saved that way. It's not that someone can't be saved that way. It's that that magic formula thing is not really what Scripture says. So I, that cheap version of Christianity it, or, or, or proclamations, even though somebody doesn't really, one, understand it, or two, believe it. There's nothing really going on here, but it's becoming a cultural Christian. I've reacted against that. And so my error is I go from one extreme to another, because we usually knee-jerk, don't we? So my error is, is having a, fr- a deep-seated frustration with how flippant we've been with dubbing people as being saved as if we can be the arbiter or the judge of whether somebody just got saved at that moment, right? Um, I've reacted to that. That's not good. So because of that, the thing that I don't say, one of the things I don't say that I just need to say, some of you need to accept the grace of God in Christ Jesus, You just need to make a decision. You need to talk to God. You need to go through the actions of praying or saying, yes, God, I get it. I get it that I can't earn it. I get it that I can't deserve it. I get it that I need it. I get it that your plan is is above kind of all this other stuff, and I'm surrendering to that, and I will die to this kind of old self that tries to figure it out through striving and through protect. I'll die to that, and I'll say yes to you. I want to be in Christ. I want him to be my advocate. I want him to be what's good about me. And, and there, there's some of you that literally might have been sitting here for years and you're just right on that edge of knowing that God's doing something, but you've just never made a decision or said, I'm, I'm literally going to walk from one side to the other side, or God help me walk from one side to the other side, or I want to get baptized as a response because I'm all in. 
So I, I talk about all in, but I don't do a good job of just saying, look, you gotta, you gotta make a decision and get saved. I'm not gonna be the one that says who's saved, who's not. It's not, God knows that. Do you understand what I'm saying? That? But what I have to say is those of you that have not yet made a decision for Christ or accepted that offer or thrown yourself on your knees and, and, and cried before God, you need to do that. It's just something that I got to say. And whether that's where you're at this morning or not, that's, I don't know. But I don't want to be responsible because of my own frustrations with recent church history to never say plainly what needs to be said, which is God loves you. And he has heard your cries. And the answer to those cries, the thing that will reconcile you and complete you, redeem you, set you free, all of those things is what he has done in Christ Jesus. And that is there for you to accept by faith. If you, and you know, if you want to talk more about that, I will literally clear my calendar of everything. Before I do that, I might clear Brandon's calendar of everything. But I will make sure somebody meets with you and tries to talk with you because that is ultimately at the heart of this whole thing called Christianity. It's us becoming Christians, taking on the name Christ. And so if I keep missing that, or if I never say that plainly, then, then I'm doing a disservice to all of us. Let me just flip you over to Ephesians 4 now. Ephesians chapter 4, I'll just pick it up in the beginning. Ephesians chapter 4, as a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And then he goes on and says this, chapter 4, verse 4. There is one body and one spirit. And just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That little chunk right there, is, as well as anything else, speaks to the word unity. Jesus the last thing he prayed before he was going to die, like, I mean, just racked with emotions, is pleading with God that he would maintain the unity of the church because ultimately that unity is the greatest expression of health there can be. And that's true of your family, it's true of the two football teams that are playing today. It's, it, by the way, you know the question like, you know, there's guys praying on both teams. It's kind of weird. Which one's God going to listen to? It's, you know what I'm saying? It's easier today because God really doesn't care about either teams. 
so it doesn't really matter, right? Um, but uh, those teams have got there not because they don't fight or because they don't say what they think and they keep kind of a semblance of togetherness. It's not unity. They get there because they're all bought in. They are all committed to one purpose, one cause, one team, each other, recognizing and understanding it's not going to be any one player that's going to, but they are united. That's why they can rise through the whole ranks of competition and get to where they're at. I've been a fan of the Dallas Cowboys for a lot of years. They're a perfect example of talent doesn't get you to the Super Bowl. <laughs> Sorry, it's my own issues. I'm, I'm in therapy for it, but, but Talent alone doesn't bring something together into a healthy, cohesive, effective unit. Do you understand what I'm saying? When I, when I uh, grew up through the church ranks, when I got saved, when I was going to seminary, when I was working at churches, another thing I reacted against was just how unengaged people were. People don't like going to church. You might not know that. Um, pe- people, even you guys, you don't, no one likes going to church. It's okay. It's not going to hurt my feelings. But I, I see that. And it bothered me. I mean, I started with a college group of a bunch of Christian kids that just did not see the value of church. And I would plead with those college kids and say, look, if you don't make church cool... It will not be cool. You're the cool. I mean, you guys know that high waters are uncool, and you know that, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, you guys are the thing, people, the group, the gener- that knows what cool is. You're the next generation. If you don't make church cool, it's going to become uncool because nothing's neutral. You guys, by your lack of participation, will make it uncool to the 12-year-olds below you or through your participation to the 12-year-olds or the junior hires or the highs, you will make church cool. And so I pleaded with these Biola kids, like, you've got to understand, church is God's plan A. There is no plan B. If you don't think it's cool, then make it cool. I mean, I pleaded with these kids. So when I came to this church and when we were planting Antioch, I was so concerned that everybody would like it. That this week, I've realized something. I haven't been fighting for unity. I've been fighting for what my good friend Ed Underwood calls uniformity. Now, Ed's a a stud, not in the equestrian sense, but the... the, uh, the series he's going through in First Peter down at his church, he's been uh, on Twitter and Facebook, even though he's in his 60s. It's kind of fun, like seeing Ed rock the Twitter. Um, he had these one-liners that he just, for like about two weeks, was just firing out there. So I went and found Ed on Facebook and copied them all. just want you to listen to this because... I think, it's, I think it's really important. Ed says this, We are born 
to make it all about me. And we're reborn to make it about others. And biblical unity requires Christ-like humility. Uniformity requires worldly power. Biblical unity is based on trust. Uniformity is based on agreement. Biblical unity develops Christ-like character in community. Uniformity develops a few desired characteristics in a cult. Biblical unity encourages honesty to reveal failures and faults. Let me read that again. Biblical unity encourages honesty to reveal failures and heal faults. Uniformity encourages hypocrisy to shame failures and hide faults. The values of biblical unity, he put a hashtag in this one, that's kind of funny. Um, The values of biblical unity are dictated by biblical truth. The values of uniformity are dictated by the opinions of the loudest. Biblical unity views authority and submission as expressions of love. Uniformity views authority and submission as expressions of control. Uniformity says, don't question or disagree. Unity says, if it's your honest question, ask it. If it's your honest comment, make it. Biblical unity always demands humility, but never demands uniformity. Every Christian is either increasing or decreasing the influence of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth by his or her commitment to harmony. Ed says, unity unleashes the power of the church. And by and then he speaks directly to Christians. I piece this together. He says, Christian, your influence in society will, will not come by imposing biblical righteousness, but by demonstrating biblical righteousness. Christian, your influence in society will not come by demanding your rights, but by defending the rights of others. So here's the thing. I, I really care about the church. I care about my family, too. My, I began to realize there's a different way that my love is being expressed in my family versus the way it's being expressed when I teach this church. I am not afraid to speak my mind in my family. I'm not afraid to reprove, correct, discipline, teach, or say anything hard to my family. You want to know why? Because I care about the health of my family. And I know that unity, togetherness, is not going to come by sweeping things under the rug or not saying difficult things. It's actually going to come on the backside of difficult conversations. Does that make sense? I also speak my mind to my family because I know they can't leave. (laughs) So... Here's what I realize I've been doing with the church. I've been pleasing people. Because if I don't please you, you would be dissatisfied. 
If you're dissatisfied, you might leave or not come or just take a general passive posture to church rather than show by your body language and everything else that church is cool. And so I've been trying to keep everybody happy thinking that that would make church cool and making church cool would be healthy. But that's not the way it works, is it? Health comes from unity. And unity comes through Um, all of us having a shared heart for a shared Savior and a shared salvation and a common faith and a common understanding of this thing called Christian community and that it'll never be perfect and it'll always be messy, yet we have to commit to it because somehow there's something we both bring to it and get from it and that it's God's will. And so whether we do it by duty or desire, it's the right thing. And that in that one shared thing, we all seek to invest into it rather than just take from it it's not there just to be used but it's something that we all rally around that's greater than the sum of its parts so I'm realizing that Jesus did something that I've not done let me read a little bit more of Ephesians, it says this in chapter 4. It says, To each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And then it goes on and says, It was he, it was Christ, who gave some to be apostles. Now this is spiritual gifts we're talking about. Some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors, and some to be teachers to prepare God's people for works of service Why? So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Jesus has given you a gift. He's given you a tool. It's like in the Chronicles of Narnia or the Lord of the Rings, Uh, C.S. Lewis Tolkien, Best Buds, so a lot of similar things. In those books, or think movie, whichever, like the elf or whoever always gives them that one little gift, right? Gives one to each person, and it's always different, and it's always the thing that's going to be needed at some point for that unique traveler or whatever to accomplish the task they need to accomplish. It's the thing that's going to help them bridge something they otherwise wouldn't have been able to bridge or to serve that little uh, fellowship in a way that they uniquely will be able to serve the fellowship so that that group can accomplish its task. It's very biblical kind of view that, that this Christ that you're in has given you a gift. Why? He's given you a gift that you will be able to leverage to help the the community of believers grow together in unity 
and ultimately accomplish its purposes as we all grow up and attain maturity. So this is how it goes on. He says, when this happens, we'll, we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. There's this really beautiful road in Cambodia. Cambodia used to, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, just be like a marshland. And then the river slowly deposited soil or dirt, and it slowly became just kind of like lands that flood in times of rain, you know, really flat, but, but you can grow great rice and everything else on it. Well, when you go out into the flattest of the flat in the upcountry part, there's elevated roads that they've created, beautiful like red dirt roads. And this one road had these trees lined up. It's just gorgeous. You want, you want to know why the trees were there? What happens to red dirt when it rains, especially if it's elevated? It would erode out, wouldn't it? So, I mean, these trees were planted not to create this wonderful tourist paradise, but it was literally as an agricultural kind of device or tool to hold it together. And we know that the roots of trees prevent things from being washed away. Paul is saying when we contribute our gifts to each other and when we do this thing called church and we build it up and edify it that coming together knitting together like a fabric is going to keep us from literally being blown around and being confused or lost or having doubts or whatever it's like the roots holding the soil there so as we come together this is going to help our faith and instead of this being blown around, speaking the truth in love, not pleasing people, but speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into Him who is the head, that is Christ. And from Him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love. Here's the last phrase. As each part does its work. Christian, if you are a part of the body, if you are a part of Antioch, Christ's will for you, the head that informs this part of the body that you are, his will for you is that you would do your work. In John 15, Jesus gives this vine in the branches parable. And he says, if you're in me, there's nourishment that flows and you're going you're gonna to bear much fruit. But if you're not in me, literally, we all kind of know this, you're going to wither up and be dead and nothing good will come from you. And so Jesus says, look, here's what happens. If you're bearing fruit, I'll literally prune you and help grow you. Even though it might be difficult, I care enough that I'm going to nurture that. If you're good for nothing, then I'm going to gather you up and use it for what we do with dead wood. We're going to burn it for fuel. Now, Paul uses a very similar metaphor. He says, now it's a body 
and Christ is the head. He's still the one that's, that's breathing life into this body, animating this body. And the body is, are the Christians. It's the church, and we're all different parts because we have different gifts. And as we receive from the head, we do what we are supposed to do. That thing grows up into fullness, and it pulls itself together. By parity of reasoning, if there's a part of the body that's disconnected from the body, not being informed by the head, not doing what that part of the body was created to do, it's in effect, like this piece of wood, not a part of the body. There's two words about dead weight that I think are really informative. They're these. Dead weight. (laughs) What I've been doing that Christ never did, forgive me, there are some of you out there that are needy. There's some of you out there that are lost on this margin. And, and you know what? That is the season you're in. And if Antioch does not help you, shame on Antioch. But, but you are in a position where you have to be supported and loved. You might even be lost where you need other people to come find you. That's your position. You got next to nothing or almost nothing to give. That's cool. I'm okay with that. There's those of you over here that literally are burning yourselves out for Antioch. Do not grow weary. I pray that we would come alongside and encourage you, hold you up. The picture of Moses where he was getting tired and his arms started to fall in the Old Testament and people literally came and held up his arms underneath him. If you are wearing yourself out for Antioch, doing your part, God bless you. There's this part in the middle. I've been trying to keep you guys happy. I hope there's no one in that category in this church. And if you're new to this church, you know, this is an in-house conversation. I hope you don't feel called out. But someone who's literally been a Christian has resources, resources that they would be able to contribute, has gifts, has, has talents, has energy, has capacity, but is somehow justified themselves in being a bystander or going along for the ride and having no compulsion to contribute. I'm not going to love people. It would make me look liberal. Jesus will be so proud. And I've been spending so much of my energy trying to keep these people happy And the funny thing is is that I flipped through the Gospels this week. You know what I realized? Jesus never gave any time to that whole category. You know, I mean, you're welcome to go search the Scriptures and try and prove me wrong. But what I'm realizing is Jesus was so laser-focused on His calling 
that he nurtured those that needed nurturing and he equipped those that needed equipping and he avoided dead weight. He was very efficient. And you know how he was able to do this? He didn't care what people thought. And he realized that the effectiveness of his ministry was not going to come by the size of the offering or the size of the attendance or the graph that shows growth, but that his effectiveness was going to come because God was himself orchestrating and calling the shots. And all he had to do was be faithful to his calling. So I went back to the story of Gideon in Judges chapter 6. I thought about reading it. It took me 20 minutes by myself. I decided not to read it. But in Judges, you have this amazing cycle of God saving his people, the people being blessed, the people getting spoiled and forgetting, God handing them over again to someone else, the people crying out to God, then God again sending a liberator. And it's this cycle in Judges, and if you, if you ever want to know how just simple the spiritual life is, just slap this circle over your own life and you realize that people are people are people are people. Always have been, always will be, but this is the cycle, unfortunately. And so the Israelites are in one of these seasons where they've been crying out, God raises up Gideon, and the fascinating thing is the angel of the Lord says, comes and says, God is with you, and then Gideon says, but sir... If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? I love that. I mean, that's as real as it gets, right? If God's really with us, then how come all this is going on? So it goes on and, and it says, look, you're going to save the people. And he says, I'm from the smallest tribe. God says, I don't care. He says, assemble the people. And then he says, you know, there's thousands, thousands and thousands of people and God says, no, it's too many. Because when I save you, I don't want you thinking it was because of strength of numbers. I want you to know that I did it because hopefully, maybe, just maybe, it'll sink in. That I'm the God that you should follow and you shouldn't leave me again for other idols or false gods. So he says, no, 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 no. That's too many. And so he says this. He says, tell them if anybody doesn't want to be there. If they're scared, if they're quaking, if they don't want to be there, Gideon, tell all of those people they're free to go. And three quarters leave. God says, first off, dead weight, don't need it. And then he says, I want you to sift them by having them come take water. And he says, if they lap the water this way to the left, if they do it this way to the right. And so he says, the ones that did it this way, I want that number. It's 300. Those are the guys I want. Give the trumpets from the other guys to these guys, and this is what I'm going to work with. And Gideon follows God. He obeys God. He does this. And those 300 guys, God uses them literally a thousand to one numbers to go in and get the, uh, 
It's the same valley, by the way, um, Jezreel, that we were talking about the last couple weeks with Elijah, although a different time period. But they get them running, and then they, they, they give chase, and they literally rout and then save Israel. Those 300, 300 guys. Jesus kept paring down his numbers. John chapter 6, so many people left because of what he was saying to them that he looked at his like best friends and he says, you guys going to leave too? And so then Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, not on a white stallion. Have you ever seen that picture of Napoleon? The big white horse going over the Alps? You ever seen that picture? The funny thing is he was being pulled on a, on a mule. But when he had the painting painted... He had it like this big, magnificent white horse because he was in love with the Romans and the whole idea of that whole thing. So next time you see Napoleon, the big white horse, just kind of laugh because it was actually a small, short dude on a, a little mule. Why were we talking about Napoleon? Um, where were we? Oh, Jesus rode in on a donkey. The, uh, <laughs> he comes in humble chooses it that way. He tells them to go find the, the little coal or whatever it was. He, Jesus chooses it that way. He rides in in weakness with a couple of dudes. And he accomplished the purposes of God to literally redeem and reconcile a broken world, the whole cotton-picking thing. And so you've got Gideon, and God says, no, 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 I use you. I give you gifts. I provide tools. I give direction. But let, let's not equivocate about this. I will accomplish my purposes. You just submit to me, surrender to me, serve me, but I'm the one that's going to do it. Jesus comes along, and nobody gets it. When he should be having a strategy meeting, he's playing with little kids. Like, nobody gets it, but Jesus is saying, look, you don't understand. It's not the human way that this is going to go down. And so when I come to Antioch Church, I'm beginning to realize there was a little cartoon in 1999 when uh, Gore ran against Bush. And I don't know if you remember this. I mean, I know you remember the election, but I don't know if you remember this part, but Gore is running, and they began to tell Clinton to just disappear. Because Clinton kept trying to talk, and it would just really overshadow Gore. And so Gore's biggest problem, they were saying, was this, this shadow of Clinton. So there's a cartoon of Gore running like in those relay races, you know, like Little House on the Prairie style, you know, like running with Clinton on his back. You know, like looking all excited and like, you know, cheering him on, and Gore's kind of running with this big monkey on his back. And, it, and the idea was, it's, it's a problem for Gore. It's dead weight. He needs to get that off his back, and he needs to focus on who he is, who his people are, what his message is. When, when we care so much about uniformity or popularity or success or numbers or money, We, we, me, 
will try to run around and, and placate or carry these people on my back, on our back, the whole while doing an injustice to my calling. My gifts are as a pastor. My job is to equip or nurture. And if I'm out people-pleasing, I'm not doing for this church what God created me to do for this church. And I've gotten into this habit because we have big dreams here of always trying to look outside of this church for the engine that will drive the dreams that we have for this church. Who's that rich guy, doesn't go to Antioch, but has a lot of money that could drop it on Antioch so that we could do what we're all about? And I've, I've begun to realize this is the body of Christ that God has here for us. We collectively are the engine for whatever God has for this church. We together are the ones that band around a common cause, sacrifice that cause, bring what we can bring, if we can bring, but we are this church. And so I've begun to, to feel this week as I've been wrestling, like, you know what? It doesn't matter whether we're 500 here or 200. What matters more than anything else is that we're unified, that we're a team that everyone that's here is at least desirous. You might not be in the season, but you're at least desirous of being a part, of contributing, of, of doing what you can to make God's purposes made real through this church. So, just saying it, saying it. As much as it terrifies me, there's only one thing that I really want for this church now. And it's not that church would be cool. It's that we would be united. It's that this would really be a body. Because ultimately, like with my family, that's the, it's the only thing that's going to bring health. Everything else is surface. So this morning... Are you in Christ? Are you still just waffling? Do you need to make a decision? Do you need to say, look, I'm, I'm tired of wandering in the desert. Man, God, just give me a gift. Turn me loose. Uh, where are you at with church? Is this just a resource to draw from to help give you what you need to make your life flower a little bit better, a little bit more like you want? Or do you actually see this church as something that you are called to serve, that the gifts you've been given are there, at least in part, to help edify this body? When, when, when I was in another church, when we, when we planted this church, there was a lot of churches that didn't really get it, and it really showed me something about ownership. If I say to you, whose shirt is that? The logical answer is Mine. To take you out to the parking lot and say, whose car is that? It's yours. If I take you to your house, well, whose house is this? Well, my wife and it's our family's house. If I take you here and then say, well, whose 
church is this, and then put a blank, what's the right answer? It's Christ's church. It's his body. There's a lot of things I own. I don't own this. There's a lot of things that I own collectively with other people, not this. This is Christ's body. And so our gifts, our purposes are not just to make this a better social club. The church is the only institution in the history of the world that exists for the benefit of its non-members. The, the dreams we have, the things we're pursuing, the goals we have to reach people, to make a change, to do something. We're trying, at least as elders and as staff and, and hopefully everyone, we're trying to discern, God, what do you have for this body out there to make an impact in this world and, and then gift us for that purpose and we'll surrender our gifts and our resources to that. But if we begin to own Antioch, if I begin to pander and allow this to become social club, but hey, everybody's happy, then, uh, then there's no truth. There's, there's no unity. There's no hell. Where are you at with Christ? I pray that wherever you're at in your walk, that God would light a fire for how you can be used on his team. Father, just, I pray for us, I pray for this church, I pray for the finances of this church, I pray for the problems that we face, I, I pray for the hurdles that are in front of us, I pray for the temptations to look good, to pretend to sweep things under the rug, to put on a false face and not be true. I just pray for those temptations. I pray against the urge to make this ours, to decorate it, to craft it, to try and make it suit our, our desires and our opinions, our decorating thoughts. Let us not... Let us not take control of this thing. Father, let us keep giving it back to you. Let it be your church. Let us be your people, surrendered to your purposes. Father, give us the faith to ask for more spiritual gifts. We would not just accept little things, but if we're trying big things for you, we would cry out to you and say, God, there's something I need that I lack. Provide it. Give us big faith. Allow us to encourage each other. Let the unity of this body be something that pulls together and uh, just creates a big fire. Let us decrease. We pray that your son would increase. In Christ's name, amen.